The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to go into the great Shema again. Passage of scripture that is well known to all Jews, well known for sure to uh, the Jews of Jesus' time, and ask any Jew today what the Pledge of Allegiance is for Judaism, and they will no doubt and rightly point back to this text, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, and that word hear in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word shema, hear, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. One of the most difficult questions that is asked in Christian circles, one of the most difficult questions that I know I'm asked and I have to give an answer to, is probably a difficult one that you've had to answer as well, is what's your favorite verse? Or said another way, what's your favorite book in the Bible? Now, if you're like me, that's probably changed over the years and sometimes month to month. But without answering out loud, if I said, what is your favorite verse or your favorite book, I wonder what you would say. I know I've changed my answers depending on what I've studied. Every time I think about this, I think of Charles Spurgeon, who, as you know, had a very different approach to exposition than we do in terms of consecutive verse by verse. He would study all week and then decide on Saturday night what he was going to preach on the next day. And he said, I I would come to to the Bible on on Saturday nights to see what I would preach, and every verse would raise its hand and say, pick me, Mr. Spurgeon, pick me. Well, I feel the same way in thinking about what my favorite would be. There's certainly nothing wrong with changing your answer. There's certainly nothing wrong with that evolving over time. Different books and different verses of the Bible really serve us differently at different places and in different stages and in different seasons of our lives, do they not? There are certain psalms that I can remember reading in a time of trial or struggle that I, I would have never thought to have thought deeply about except in the middle of a struggle. There are certain things about the Lord that I saw when someone was preaching, certain dimensions about Jesus that I understood through the exposition of God's word that suddenly leapt off the page and became favorites as well. But there is a specific test we can apply to each of our lives, that will test what our favorite verse or what our favorite book of the Bible might be. What book do you find yourself quoting or referring to the most? It's a fair question. Where does your heart kind of gravitate back towards? I think it's fair to say that's likely your favorite book or at least plays a most important role in your life. Now, we cannot say with any degree of certainty what the favorite book and favorite verse of Jesus Christ was. Almost. We can't say this. Jesus Christ in Holy Scripture 
quoted the book of Deuteronomy more than any other book. When it came time to him to do battle with the devil in Matthew chapter 4, and Satan tempted him in three specific ways over three different times, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, each time he answered him with scripture, we all know that, but did you know that each time he answered him with verses from Deuteronomy? And we can go a step further. The Pharisees were constantly trying to trap Jesus, and their traps were always the same. We will ask him a question, anticipate what we think he's going to answer, and when he answers that, we'll give another rebuttal to that answer, which will obviously show him to be inferior to the way we approach the same question. Well, the Pharisees were engaging Jesus on bibliology. They came to the Lord because he quoted so much scripture. He exposited so much scripture. He talked about so much scripture. And they finally got up the nerve to try to pin him down and ask him a question that they would be able to trump. They challenged him to conclude, what is the greatest commandment in the Torah, in the Bible? What's the greatest? Remember, all they had was the Old Testament at the time. What's the greatest commandment in their Bible in the Old Testament? There's a lot of conjecture over what they thought Jesus might say. But there is no conjecture that they thought, because the text says they were trying to test him or trap him, that if they could get a certain answer that they might, through their collective wisdom, have a huddle up and give a different answer to to and say, well, what about this one? Isn't that better than that one? And they were probably thinking in legalistic categories. You have to do this. You have to not do that. You pick up that very familiar text in Matthew 22, but when the Pharisees, verse 34, heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. He won the debate against the Sadducees. The Pharisee says, we can do better than that. One of them, a lawyer, and when you read lawyer in in the New Testament Gospels, you can't think attorney in in our category. Lawyer meant a law expert, an expert on the Torah. This was a religious apologist. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And I just love the fact that Jesus, there's no gap between verse 36 and 37, and he said to him, Jesus was ready with an answer. His answer is in our text in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. So can I confess a little bit of fear and trepidation at preaching on what Jesus said is the greatest commandment in the law? That's no small task, is it? What does that mean? And yet the simplicity of this command can be understood by a child and applied this very evening, and it can also be studied by the greatest minds and scholars of the world and never mine and plumb out its depths. Jesus answers by going back to Deuteronomy 6, Verse 5, the great Shema of Judaism. We studied this last week. Here in the second address or the second sermon of Deuteronomy, Moses stresses the unmatched privileges that the people of God had, the Jews had, because they'd been given grace in a special relationship they shared with Yahweh. 
And remember that term Yahweh is from the unspeakable, ineffable, four letters, tetra, four, grammaton, four letters. Yo, hey, wow, hey. They were letters that we best can put vowels with to say Yahweh. Remember, there were no Hebrews, uh, there were no vowels in the original Hebrew. In fact, some people turned that into a word Jehovah by adding the Hebrew vowels for Adonai to that word. That's where we get the word Jehovah. Some translations actually translate the word Yahweh as Jehovah. But for our purposes, if I say the the term Yahweh, that's the given name that God gave to Moses, Exodus 3, Exodus 4, tell them I am. I am the eternal present tense. I am the eternal self-existent one. I am has sent you. Well, now we come in Deuteronomy to not only the great Shema, the call to the people of Israel to listen, but now we say listen to what? And what follows, hear, O Israel, in this instance, is what Jesus says, there is a commandment greater than which none exists. That's just mind-numbing to me. Jesus identified the greatest, most overarching, most far-reaching dimension of spirituality and spiritual maturity in the commandment of the Shema. In order to do this, I want to find with you three applications of this greatest commandment. Three applications of the great commandment. Now, interesting, when we get to these points, we're going to talk about the great commandment in terms of the greatest love. Because the great commandment is about the greatest love. First application of the greatest commandment is this. To remember the object of the greatest love. This we got to do some review. Let's go back to verse 4. Hear, O Israel, listen up, Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. We talked about the different ways you could translate these four Hebrew words. There's no verb here. It's just uh, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. The Lord one, or the Lord unique, or the Lord is ours, or the Lord is possessive of us. Moses addresses the people of Israel with a Shema here, actually uh, six different times. Hear, O Israel. He does so in 5.1, in 6.3. Sometimes it's translated like in 6.3 in the New American Standard. You should listen. Same word, Shema, uh, in 6.4, verse 3, and 27, verse 9. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. And it's tantamount to what you and I know we do with a young child Who's having a moment where they're distracted by the world? And so you gently grab their, their, their jaw, which is a great handle, and you turn to look in their eyes and you say, listen, listen to me. Are you hearing me? That's what God means when he says, hear, O Israel. Think about it. He wasn't intending for everything he said previous to this to not be heard. Was he expecting, well, they haven't been listening, so now that I've got their attention, I'm going to say, hear, O Israel, this is, this is what you should really listen to. No, what he was doing is putting an exclamation point on this. Hear, O Israel, this is a very important principle that I'm laying down. This is an ever-present call to the people of God to be at the ready to hear God's word and respond 
to hear God's word and to respond to God's word. But following each of these shemas, hear, O Israel, is always specific commands and specific admonitions. One of the great things about our God is he's very direct and very specific and very detailed in his expectations. No one ever wakes up in the morning and says, hmm, I just wonder, what would God want me to do today? Now, there may be different specific uh, things that, that are not informed by the word of God. Does he want me to wear the blue shirt or the white shirt? On a moral level, we never have to ask the question, what does God want me to do today? He's told us. He's done so by this simple principle. Hear what I've said. We need to ask a, a fundamental, bibliological question over and over, day after day in our walk with the Lord. And it's this. Does God, do you believe God has or had a speech impediment? Do you believe God has trouble communicating what he thinks, has trouble communicating who he is, has trouble communicating what he's like? Now, the problem is not on the sender, it's on the receiver, right? Well, in this command, there's just not a whole lot of deep level stuff to wade through. Your, your five-year-old can understand this. We covered that last week. A second application of the great commandment is this. Pursue the spectrum of the greatest love. The object of the greatest love is the Lord himself. He's the object who we should love more than anything else. That's the object. The spectrum is very interesting. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God. Stop right there. This is the first time in the Bible that the people are told specifically, you shall express this kind of love. Now, they were, they were told to obey the Ten Commandments because they loved, but this is a direct command to love. Notice here that the command is not to tell God you love him. There's nothing wrong with singing, I love you, Lord, and telling the Lord we love him. But when our children were little and our, well, it's actually, it's not when they were little alone. Uh, one of my wife's great insights was uh, when there was a moment of disobedience and um, uh, there was sorrow expressed and forgiveness asked for and extended and there was love expressed, it always was followed by this. Great, I'm glad that you tell me you love me, but you know what this is, right? If you love me, then you will obey me. You'll do what I say. I think God understood that. Understood that. That's why he doesn't say, Hear, O Israel, tell the Lord you love him. And we can tell the Lord we love him. But the greatest volume of our expression of that love is obedience. This is Moses' call to the lordship of Yahweh with wholehearted, comprehensive love. This Hebrew word for love is a very interesting word. It means to look out for the well-being and pleasure of a covenant partner. It's interesting. To look out for the well-being and pleasure of a covenant partner, someone you have a relationship, a contractual relationship with. 
Now look at the ways this is expressed. There are three categories. Look at this first category. With all your heart. With all your heart. Uh, The word for heart here is lave. It's the seat of emotions. It's the will. It's the mission control of your life. It includes, this is important, head and heart. The idea of separating your thinking and your feeling is a very Greek notion. The Hebrews didn't have any concept of that. They talked in terms of you think from and express from your bowels, actually, your stomach, your, your, your midsection. That's where you think and that's where you feel. They didn't have a fully developed understanding of brain interactions and firings between you know, neurosynapses, but they did know that when you felt certain things, you typically, or you thought certain things, you felt it in your midsection, didn't you? You guys have felt anxiety and you feel that flash of adrenaline. You felt fear, you know what that feels like. You felt excitement, you felt butterflies. For a Hebrew then, the idea of thinking and feeling were one in the same. And that was contained in the metaphor of a heart. Your heart was mission control central of your life. Your disposition, how you think, how you feel, which were always wed together in the Hebrew mind. Feelings and thinking. It's the secret area of your life, by the way. No one can see your heart, your thoughts, only you and God. It's the place where motives are formulated. It's the place where motives are tested. We know that God pays extra special attention to our hearts, right? 1 Samuel 16, 11. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature. He's talking about David. David and Saul were being in paradox in comparison in in Samuel's mind here. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Talking about Saul. For God sees as not as a man sees. Let me say that right. For God sees not as a man sees. What do you mean by that? Man looks at the outward appearance, but you say it with me. The Lord looks at the heart. He tests the heart because that's who we really are. So this admonition to love the Lord with all of our heart is our thinking, our feeling. It's the innermost being of who we are. It's the secret self. It's what really drives us. It's what really defines us. It's who you are when no one else is around. That's the area from which love should issue forth from the heart to God. It really accents our understanding of God's omniscience, doesn't it? I mean, do you believe God's omniscient, that he knows everything? Do you believe what Psalm 139 says, that before there's even a word on your lips, the Lord knows it? Do you believe God sees into your heart? Do you believe God tests your intents, can see into your motives, can judge your thoughts? Jesus, quoting this verse, Moses charging the new people going into the land, says, love the Lord from your heart, from that part that's really, really you. We'll come back to that in a minute. Secondly, he says, with all your soul, with all your soul, interesting Hebrew word, nefesh. Literally, it's translated in other places, your throat, your gullet, the place you express yourself from. It's the appetite, the desires, the life, the whole self, the entire person. 
It has to do with what we do and how we express ourselves. Don't think soul as if this is soul and spirit, dichotomy, trichotomy, is this the immaterial part? No, the soul here in, in this uh, context is all that you are. It's, it's kind of the outside. The heart is the inside. The soul is your whole life. It's everything about you. It's how you act on the outside based on who you are on the inside. That's the soul concept in Hebrew. We'll come back to that in a moment. Thirdly, with all your might. This is a very interesting uh, word that the Septuagint translate as mind. Jesus said, with all your mind. And that's an interesting translation based on the meaning of the Hebrew word, which is very understandable. It's best understood as, listen, your resources, which includes your physical strength, your economic or social strength, your physical possessions, and your money. And so in the Septuagint, which Jesus was quoting, remember the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that Jesus quoted uh, most to the, uh, the Pharisees and to the disciples. They had translated this word, uh, ma'oth, uh, with all your might, they translated that as mind, which really has to do with not your thinking as much as what you decide to do with all you have. It's anchored in your resources. So look at the progression here. Think of these as concentric circles. Love the Lord with who you are on the inside, with your heart, all that's secret. Love the Lord with all that you are on the outside, your, your soul, the way you express yourself, uh, everything that, that involves people's understanding of you from the outside. And then, under, and then love God with your resources, everything God's given you. The point is, we're to love God comprehensively. Said from the negative, there is no area, no dimension, no part of our life that is not supposed to be used expressly for the love of God. Now, if you are like most people, and you should be curious, and if you're like your sons or daughters down in verse 20, when your son asks you in time, why? What do these mean? Why should I love the Lord? Why should I do these things and not do these other things? What is the why? You can't get to all of your soul, all of your heart, soul, mind. You can't get to there until you pass the test of chapter, of verse four. It's because of who God is. Can I suggest that this has such a linear uh, importance, the inability or the, the lack of knowing who God is and his attributes, his character, is why we struggle in loving God in these categories. Every person loves. And you know what you love? You love what you spend your time and your resources on. You love what you give your time and your life and your attention to. Everything is in competition with Loving the Lord. But when you love the Lord, you can love the Lord in enjoying and in using everything that would have earlier been a competition. Unless it's a sinful moral choice. For example, um, uh, there's nothing wrong with driving a car. Driving a car that's, that's, that's a nice car. Driving a car that, that smells nice. Isn't that the most expensive perfume on the planet? Is new car smell? The question is, do you... 
Does that car now allow you to thank the Lord, be grateful for the Lord, uh, uh, use it for the Lord, or does that car cause you to make an idol out of it? Start caring for it more than the Lord. How do you know whether it's an idol or not? Just let a four-year-old eating Oreos ride in the back seat, and you'll know the idolatry of that car very fast. Paul picks up the idea of the Shema. If you want to turn and look there in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Jesus certainly did, but Paul picks it up as well. Paul, going back to looking at the Shema, and his understanding of the great commandment to Israel is given in reference to and in distinction of idolatry. We should expect that. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone, uh, here we go, loves God... He is known by him. Paul defines a relationship with God as a love relationship. Therefore, concerning the things uh, sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. Remember the context of the Shema? It was right after the Ten Commandments and which begin at the very beginning. The first two commandments are God's exclusivity and God's right to define his image, which means no idols. Well, here he comes back to that. For, and then he, he, he adds a ridiculous argument. He's speaking tongue-in-cheek here, verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, as uh, there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Do you hear what Paul's doing logically? Because of who God is in reference to things that pull us away as idols, we are to love him and not these things. What the Old Testament teaches about Yahweh, Paul teaches about Jesus. Which makes sense because Jesus is Yahweh. Now, we need to pull the car over for a moment. This is a place that we have been before. Uh, I've talked about a passage, a a quote that has had just an enormous imprint and effect on my life. And I want to come back to it. And we'll likely come back to this in the future. As you know, my historical hero is Jonathan Edwards. Um, Jonathan Edwards was, in my estimation, the greatest mind America has ever enjoyed or produced. Uh, he thought about things at such a deep level with a biblical filter and a biblical worldview that we do so well to listen to him. But he also wrote in, uh, in a different time, in a different way, and sometimes he's a little difficult to follow. When you read Edwards or even the Puritans, there, there's a certain rhythm and meter you have to kind of accustom your mind to. But once you begin getting that, it's much easier to understand uh, John Owen is the same way to me. I love John Owen. I can just handle about two pages a day. Um, just very dense. Well, let me talk about Edwards for a minute because he talks a lot about this issue in uh, his book called Religious Affections. Now, Religious Affections is an important book for this study because he, he, he was defining what it means to love God, what it means to apply the great commandment. 
And just as the Hebrews didn't distinguish between head and heart, Edwards didn't either. He used the, the word affections, not effections, affections as a combination of thinking and feeling. He put those together. Our affections are how we think and, and how we feel, and those influence one another. Um, he says uh, the religious affections are no other than the vigorous and sensible exercises and the inclination of the heart and will. In other words, it's all you are and the way you lean. In the last section, the last paragraph of section one in religious affections, there's two main sections. The last paragraph is what we're going to go over here in a minute. For, for me personally, was a place where God, when I was reading it, turned a light on so bright, I have never run out of that understanding. And it has everything to do with what we're talking about here. We've talked about this before we did so when we were studying John chapter 16, but let's come back to it. This is what Edward says at the end of that first section on religious, and by that he means Christian, affections. He says, if we ever, if we ought ever to exercise our affections at all, I'll stop right there. He's saying we're built to think, we're built to feel, we're built to lean and to be inclined toward things that we love and appreciate. It's, it's in a man to have affections. We, all of us like something, love something, are attracted to something, sacrifice for something. If we ought ever to exercise these affections that we all have at all, and if the creator has not unwisely put together or constituted human nature in making these principles a part of it. He's saying God was wise in making us want and think and feel certain ways. When they are vain and useless, they, they don't do anything for anybody really. Then they ought to be, our, our affections ought to be exercised about those objects which are most worthy of them. Now follow what he's saying. God gave us thinking and feeling. And he gave us thinking and feeling to think about something and to feel about something. And there's nothing wrong with thinking about the world and thinking about uh, our friends and, and our spouses and our children. Uh, that's okay. But what's the greatest application of our affections? That's his word for the Hebrew word love. But is there anything which Christians can find in heaven or earth so worthy to be the objects of their admiration and love. Now he's given us synonyms for the affections, admiration and love. Their earnest longings and desires, he defines it more. Their hope and their rejoicing, their fervent zeal as those things that are held forth to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. See what he's saying? If you are built by God to feel and think and feel toward an object and think about an object, is there anything more worthy of those gifts that God gave you than the gospel of Jesus? In which not only are things declared most worthy to affect us, but they are exhibited in the most affecting manner. 
Now, he talks about this earlier, and he talks about it later in, in, in the religious affections. Let, let me explain that verse, that verse, that that sentence a little more. What he's saying is God built the gospel to satisfy our love and our affections. And he did it in a way that would most produce our greatest thinking, admiration, and feeling in the gospel. The Bible was written to affect us in the deepest, most penetrating, and most comprehensive manner. The glory and beauty of the blessed Jehovah, which is most worthy in itself to be the object of our admiration and love, is there, in scriptures, exhibited in the most affecting manner that can be conceived of. As it appears, shining in all luster in the face of an incarnate, infinitely loving, meek, compassionate, dying redeemer. All the virtues of the Lamb of God, his humility, his patience, his meekness, his submission, obedience, love, compassion, are exhibited to our view, namely in the Bible, in the Scripture. In a manner, the most tending to move our affections of any that can be imagined. God has given us a revelation of himself so that we love him. We have affections toward him. As they all had their greatest trial, their highest exercise, and their brightest manifestation when he was in the most affecting circumstances. Now I get specific. Nothing should draw out our love for God than seeing him when he was most affected, which was the passion. Even when he was under his last sufferings, those unutterable and unparalleled sufferings he endured from his tender love and pity to us. There also the hateful nature of our sins is manifested in the most affecting manner possible. It describes us. As we see the dreadful effects, our sin crucified our Savior. And that our Redeemer, who undertook to answer for us, suffered for them our sins. And there, we have the most affecting manifestation of God's hatred of sin and his wrath and justice in punishing it. Where? The cross. As we see his justice and the strictness and inflexibleness of it, and his wrath and his terribleness in so dreadfully punishing our sins in one who was infinitely dear to him and loving to us. So, God, so has God disposed things in the affair of our redemption and in his glorious dispensations revealed to us in the gospel as though, look at this, everything were purposefully contrived, this is God's word telling us about the gospel, in such a manner as to have the greatest possible tendency to reach our hearts in the most tender part and move our affections most sensibly and strongly. How great cause have we therefore to be humbled to the dust that we are no more affected. Said another way, 
When we see the fullness of God, who he is, as Paul said, Jesus is Jehovah, Jesus is Yahweh, and when we see the fullness of who God is in Christ, then that should motivate us to love him with all our heart and all our soul and all our resources, all of our mind, all of our might. We have affections toward him because he has given us data and revelation about him intending specifically to motivate our love, our affections toward him. How are you doing in those three concentric circles? In your inner being, the place that no one sees but God. In your outer being, the place that everyone sees and knows. And in your resources. And by that, I mean everything that pertains to your ownership and governance. Edward says, when we see the scriptures, God has so ordained that this actually Every word, every nuance, every description about our Lord is intended to draw out our love, our affections toward him. That's why you have verse 4 before verse 3. The Lord is our God. That's a battle cry for the Hebrews. Literally, the Lord, our God. The Lord is ours. The Lord is unique. The Lord is one which leads us to a third application of this great commandment. We'll come back to this Shema over and over in the book of Deuteronomy, by the way. Number three, and that's to practice the maintenance of the greatest love. Practice the maintenance of the greatest love. Verse six, these words, which I am commanding you today, shall shall be on your heart. Probably the best way to think about that in translation is shall percolate in your soul, shall be on your heart. It's something you think about, something you you don't walk away from easily. It's ever-present. It's comprehensive and it's extensive. Now, for this, I need you to turn over to Mark. We, We hinted at this last week, Mark chapter 12. We're going to get a fuller description of what Jesus said about the Shema in Mark chapter 12. And the reason we're doing this is that when, when our Lord Jesus exposits a text, we should probably look at our Lord Jesus exposing that text. He does a far better job than I ever could. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Now, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well. He jumps in this other argument. This was a teaching, by the way, that Jesus did over and over in different parts of, of, of Israel. Um, he had favorite teachings, favorite lines he would say to draw out what he wanted to, to expose the human heart. This was one of those teachings, one of those lessons that came back over and over. What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, and now he gives the full Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord with the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Very interesting. Jesus 
adds a category. Now, you should be saying what they didn't say, which was, hang on, throw the penalty flag. You are adding to Scripture. And they should have said, who do you think you are to add to God's word? And what's the answer to that? I'm God. I wrote it. I can expand on that and amplify that and explain that any way we want. But I love verse, verse 31 because before they could stop taking notes, Jesus says, I'm going to answer your question, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. But I'm also going to add... Leviticus 19, verse 18. The second, the second greatest commandment is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Literally, these two. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, you want the greatest? I'll give you one and two. Um, over back in Matthew 22, he also said on this depends the whole law and the prophets. Wow. Remember, um, some of you are probably too young. I don't know if they still put these out. Do they still put out Cliff's notes? Mr. Cliff was my hero in high school. Uh, Cliff's notes, for those of you too young, do they still use those? The, you guys remember the black and yellow Cliff's notes? Those of you who are nodding, I know what your academic pursuit was like. Cliff's notes were uh, like you would read, you know, a big epic novel, you know, Moby Dick or some giant, uh, you know, big thick book. Or you, let's just say this: some people who were supposed to read those big uh, books would get Cliff's notes. I, I like Cliff. Mr. Cliff was a good guy because he would summarize and annotate the entire book in just a little bitty section. Jesus. Cliff notes the entire Old Testament in two commands. Love the Lord with everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. Back that up. Every single command in the entire Old Testament fits into one of those two categories. It informs you, informs me how to love God better and richer and more intimately, or and or it informs us how to love our neighbor better than or as ourselves. So let's back up for a second. If the greatest commandment, Jesus said, is the Shema, which means to know who God is, and because of who God is, to love him, and Edwards helps us, which means to give all of our affections toward him, body, soul, mind, strength, resources, everything. How are you doing with that? How are we doing? Jesus is not to be a part of our lives. He is supposed to be the point of our lives. He's not a slice of the pie. We keep coming back to Colossians 1.18. I love that preposition. Theology is so often defined by prepositions Jesus is the head of the body of the church, the firstborn over all creation, that he might come to have, and then it says first place, that little word, not over, first place in 
everything. So there's no area of our life, body, soul, mind, strength, anything, no area of our lives over which Jesus is not to exercise his lordship. Now here's what I know about you. Because I know this about me. And that is we are constant idolaters. Constant idolaters. Remember Romans 12? Can't wait till we get to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Offer your life as a daily sacrifice, ongoing sacrifice. You know what happens is it's a strange metaphor because you have to sacrifice yourself in an ongoing fashion. Don't you wish that our sinfulness was like an animal sacrifice? That you kill it and it's done forever? I mean, our, our, our sinfulness just seems to have this resurrection every time we, we sacrifice it, right? And so Romans 12 says you're, you're constantly, you're daily, you're on, ongoing sacrificing that for God. How aggressive are you at loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Your inner self, your outer self, and everything that you own and everything that you have governance over. The truth is, most of you who know the Lord are probably doing, you got some traction in certain, certain areas. Certain areas we're seeing some growth, traction. We praise God for that. We can give him glory for that. We can be thankful for that. We can enjoy the fruit that he's bearing through us. But part of that is why we have the, the Lord's table where we come back and see the areas of our life that need to be examined and confessed. Isaac Watts' familiar words we sing, love so amazing, love so divine. Say it with me. Demands my soul, my life. What's the last phrase? My all. The hymn writers understood this. One of my favorite verses in all of the hymnal is this. Um, Francis Havergal, 1874, the last verse of Take My Life. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Wow, is that easy to sing? It's easy to sing, isn't it? How about doing it? Listen to this. Take my will. Take what I want to do. Make it yours, make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Oh, it gets more intense. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Everything on our internal disposition is the throne of God that he has access to and lordship over. Take my love, my Lord, I pour. At thy feet its treasure store, all of our resources. And then one of the greatest lines ever written to be sung. Take myself and I will be ever only what? All for thee. You know what ever only all for thee means? Heart, soul, mind, strength. So... Which part 
of our lives are we holding back from the Lord? I have a very sneaky suspicion that if you ask the Lord that in prayer, he will communicate that to you very quickly. Father, I pray that these truths are most understood in our response to the gospel. Even thinking about this, asking these questions of my own heart, I think of instant failure, 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 and yet you, Lord Jesus, have died for those failures and have given us imputed, declared righteousness that we did not earn and cannot deserve. Make our greatest aspiration, Father, to be what Havergal wrote, to be ever, only, all for thee, to love you with our heart and soul and strength, and that these would be on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>